Welcome to High Heels in Politics with Mary Ann Christie. This is the podcast where current and future leaders discuss the issues facing us in Southwest Ohio and beyond. Here is Mary Ann Christie. High Heels in Politics guest today, Elizabeth Smith, is a senior partner in the Columbus law firm, Boye, Seder, Seymour, and Pease. Elizabeth has had broad experience in business and toxic tort litigation and government regulatory litigation. Recently, she has also become involved in the regulation of marijuana, representing businesses engaged in that industry. As your high heels and politics narrator, Marianne Christie, the interview will focus on the legal work by Elizabeth with the Ohio Ethics Commission, as well as the legalization of Ohio medical marijuana and hemp programs. Elizabeth Smith has been named one of the best lawyers in America. Yes, that's best lawyers in America list and a top lawyer in Columbus. She served as the chief counsel to Ohio Attorney General Jim Petro. Recently, she was named to serve on the Columbus Bar Association Professional Ethics Commission. Welcome, Elizabeth. You've had broad litigation experience that includes arguing in state appellate courts, the Ohio Supreme Court, and the U.S. Court of Appeals. You came into this profession when few women were hired, especially by such a prestigious firm as voyeurs. Share your experience as a woman trying to make it in a man's world. Thank you, Marianne. We hear a lot about the sandwich generation, you know, referring to women who have children, who have parents. It's also a good analogy about where I believe I fit into the spectrum of women's progress. Many women before me uh, were the ones who really broke the barriers. When I came out of law school, firms were hiring women. Now, they weren't hiring them nearly at the rate that they're hiring them now. We were only 25 to 30 percent of the population of law school. Now, I came to Vori's very fortunate to be hired by them, and they already had a few women partners. But I would tell you, it clearly was a male-dominated profession. It was a male-dominated firm. In the 1980s, 1990s, I'm going to tell you that many women left the practice generally to stay home and to raise their children. I doubt that the legal profession was any different than a lot of other professions. It was very difficult back then I think nothing was very uh, friendly for a lot of women in the profession. The practice of litigation, being a trial lawyer, was even more dominated by men. I can remember being in a room in a deposition with perhaps 15 male lawyers. I'm the only woman in the room. And, of course, I was very young at the time as well. And the courts could be unforgiving as far as schedules are concerned. The attitude, though, of women not being belonging, not being a part of the group, really wasn't always expressed vocally. It was something that was uh, perhaps underneath, okay? So a lot of times you didn't realize it. And I don't have a lot of real horror stories like you hear in the news, but I can tell you that one time I walked into um, a judge's chambers to get an order signed. And again, I was young. And the judge, who's now deceased, said to me, so are you a lawyer? And I said, yes. And then he made the comment, well, lawyers are getting better looking every day. 
I didn't really know what to say back then, being again, being young. But as I've thought about it, was it a compliment or what is, was it a sexist comment? Probably both. He probably thought he was being nice or being funny. But as I said, many before me sacrificed their personal lives to become lawyers and to follow the profession. Perhaps my group of people, my age group people, were the first to come through and to start have families and have children and to continue to work and to try to balance it all. And that was new. That was new for law firms. It was new for business, right? To figure out how to, how to balance all of that. I was very fortunate here. I had mentors, but I will tell you, they were male mentors, okay? And they mentored me through the legal profession. Could they help me balance family and children? They weren't as familiar with a lot of that. But I will also tell you that I worked with a number of male mentors who themselves felt family was very important. So they got that, but it really was a different world for them. When women went out, became pregnant, had to take maternity leave, take other family leaves, that was new. But our firm, I'm glad to say, has adjusted. They provided you the time to have a baby and take care of things. It came, yes. They, yeah. they, they obviously provided leave. And as time uh, developed after that, instead of just being sort of a part-time associate, they had alternative work schedules, and we still have those. And I will just say this, the focus is now more on family as opposed to it being a women's issue. So we've really come a long way. Women have brought that along because it's an issue for men as well. You also took a sabbatical from your law firm when you were a partner and went to the AG's office. Let's talk about that. What did that experience provide you? Well, and I would tell you, it was, a, it was an unexpected uh, experience. I was recruited by Attorney General-elect uh, at that point, Jim Petro, really very late in the year, just probably a month before he was to be sworn in. He interviewed me. It was really more of them persuading me to come over there, and I am so glad I did. Probably one of the best things that I ever did. And when I interviewed, I told him I could really only leave for about two and a half years, two years, because it would be too hard to get back into, into private practice. Jim really organized his office in the way, in a very good way. He had sort of his upper level management that each person was responsible for various sections of the office. And because my experience was civil litigation, I oversaw all of the civil, uh, much of the civil litigation, six, di six uh, divisions. We probably had, I don't know, 30 or 40,000 cases pending, and I had over 100 and some lawyers reporting to me. So that was a new experience. But in that role, I learned a lot about Ohio law, working with Ohio lawyers, who I greatly respect, and coming to understand that Ohio state lawyers, lawyers who work for the state, think differently than private lawyers. And that's a very important concept when you are ever litigating with the state, uh, working on a regulatory matter with the state. You need to understand where they are coming from in why, order to work with them. Why are they, their perspective different? Is it because they have a job that they'll collect their pay regardless? Well, I, uh, that's funny you say that because sometimes I think that there, there's some truth to that, right? They, uh, uh, they don't have to worry about being as responsive to their clients as we do in the private sector. Not to say that they aren't responsive to the clients, because they are. They don't have to worry about malpractice. They don't have to worry about attorney's fees. 
so they have that leverage. But really, when I talk about the thinking issue, how they think differently, this is what I tell people. Public lawyers, if public lawyers will look at a statute, will look at a law, and if it doesn't say you can do it, the public lawyer will say to whoever, you can't do it. A private lawyer will look at the same law, and if it doesn't say you can't do it, the private lawyer will say, it doesn't say I can't do it, so I can do it. And that is the tension that you run into when you start talking about government regulations and the interpretation of those regulations. So it's, it's really a very important concept. And I think when people realize that, it lets them figure out how to get to where the other lawyer is on the other side of the negotiation or of the case and, and think about how do, you, how, do you, how do you resolve it. Elizabeth, while you were at the AG's office, you must have had some interesting experiences. Could you share with the listeners? Absolutely. You know, when I was there, <laughs> there was a lot going on in just two years. The final DeWolf ruling came down regarding the school funding. That happened. I argued a case uh, that still is, is relied upon. I argued it in the Ohio Supreme Court dealing with the uh, refund by the Bureau of Workers' Comp, the Santos case. I was there when the scandal happened with the Noe coins. All right. Coingate. Yes, I was there. Now, I left right when it was all going on, but there was a lot of excitement going on at the time. But I will tell you, the probably one of the uh, kind of amusing cases I worked on was the Lima prison closing case. When the what was that? I, I don't recall. Governor, the governor made the decision that the Lima prison would be closed because of funding. Right? They they didn't need it at the time. Okay, and so there was this question about the governor's authority to close a prison. Okay, and the whole issue, without getting into it too much, is who appropriates the money, and then who has the authority once you the money is appropriated by the general assembly to decide how it's spent. Okay, so that was that was the, the the legal issue. The corrections officers challenged the union. The union challenged uh, the closing, and so we had to go up. And I went with a couple other lawyers. We went up to Allen County for a temporary restraining order, and I'll never forget. We had to walk down the hall of the court uh, to get to the courtroom, and the hallway was lined with corrections officers. And here we were coming down, coming from Columbus, right, to argue this. It was clear who we were, that the, we were the state's lawyers. I'll never forget that experience of walking this gauntlet, essentially, of, uh, Lyman, uh, of Lima prison correction officers and then going into the courtroom where the jury box was filled with the media. Justice, uh, then former Justice Andy Douglas, was on the other side. So that was also a fascinating experience. All right. So did you win or lose the case? Ultimately, we won in the Court of Appeals. Okay. <laughs> we want to hear a little bit about the Ohio Ethics Commission. The Ohio Ethics Commission, their commission of six people with uh, also an executive director, their role is to advise public officials, it's people in the public sector, and to ha hold hearings and to investigate those about whom complaints are made about alleged violations, okay? Now, they are not a, a criminal forum. They're a civil forum. They're a, a commission. Anyone can file a complaint 
with the Ethics Commission. You don't have to be a public employee to file the complaint. But if you think that, for instance, a school board member has voted on a contract in which the school board member is going to benefit, you know, let's say the school board member sells pencils and the school board member votes on a contract for his, his or her company to sell pencils to the school district, that's an ethics violation. So if you, you know, if you see things like that, you can file a complaint and then the ethics commission will investigate it. It's really, uh, if you are investigated by the Ethics Commission, it's very important that you have an attorney advising you. The ethics laws are not necessarily always easy to understand. Now, with that being said, the Ethics Commission has a very complete and fulsome website that you can go to, and they have education sheets and fact sheets and things that can tell you sort of, you know, what's the black and white of the law, right? But Generally, the issues aren't black and white. Often they're very, uh, they're, they're more gray, right? And people often unwittingly violate the ethics laws. People, you know, people get elected and the school board's a great example, right? It's a great example of people who may never have had any experience in the public sector. Same thing with commission members, right? Get appointed and never had any experience. And the public sector world is different than the private world, okay? In the private world, it may be who you know, and it may be that, you know, you can enter into contracts that you're benefiting from. You can't in the public sector. There is also limitations on gifts. Things like bribery, that's pretty obvious, though. You know, I just saw recently that there was a public official, I think it was the mayor of Wapakoneta, who um, has been indicted, I believe, on bribery charges. It seems pretty obvious, but, you know, you can, if you have, if you are a public official and you have a question about whether something is, uh, violates the ethics laws or not, you can call the ethics commission and they'll put you in touch with one of their attorneys. Their attorneys will, if it's black and white and it's something they've already given an opinion on, they can direct you to an education uh, fact sheet that will help you. People sometimes get frustrated when they call the Ethics Commission because they may have an issue that's more gray. And it's really difficult for someone on the telephone to give you advice that they think that maybe you're going to follow and maybe it's maybe at the end of the day, there's going to be a violation, right? Because maybe you didn't tell them all the facts. So you can't always expect a clear-cut answer. But you can ask for advisory opinions. You can ask for formal or informal advisory opinions that will insulate you later on down the road, if something that you did wasn't right, it will grant you immunity. How do you file a complaint to the Ethics Commission? I think you can do a couple of things. I think you can even pick up the phone and call and do it orally. I believe there's a form online, or you can even just send them a letter. There's no real magic to it. What would be the process to request, you know, public records or investigation information? Well, that's, that's, Question's got a, a couple of different facets to it. First, if you just want to make the request, you can send an email, send a letter, and ask for public records. It depends what you're asking for, though, and whether it really is a public record. Investigations are not public record when they are before the commission. Now, when you resolve a matter before the Ethics Commission, there will be a, a settlement-type agreement that is public record. Uh, if you notice every year, there's a, there's a, there'll be a publication of the various 
violations that have been found and settled during the year. But it's important that investigations are not public record. They are confidential and they remain confidential. That's the advantage of entering into a resolution with the Industrial Commission. I'm sorry, with the Ethics Commission. If it gets turned over to a prosecutor, once you start down that road, at some point, that investigation will no longer be confidential. So there are a lot of risks if you go the prosecution way. Uh, Interesting. Let's change our whole interview and now talk about Ohio marijuana. They're already circulating a petition for the 2022 election. This is your new uh, area of litigation. Well, yes, and uh, we sort of uh, we sort of joke a little bit that I probably was voted in high school least likely to be a marijuana lawyer. Okay, but I became involved with it back when you may remember it was uh, issue three, and they tried to get a constitutional amendment, and I was the lawyer for the pack. And uh, we successfully defeated that because there was a lot wrong with the constitutional amendment. You may recall it was establishing 10 monopolies, et cetera. And the Ohio General Assembly did the correct thing by taking up the issue because they saw that most Ohioans supported medical marijuana. So having learned a lot about uh, sort of the, uh, the industry during that, I was able to become involved in the representation of certain businesses and those who had gotten licenses and those who didn't get licenses for various of the, um, you know, the dispensary, the cultivators, et cetera. We were involved in a lot of litigation in regard to, you know, all sorts of people were challenging what had happened in the whole licensing process. I think the medical marijuana control program learned a lot from that first round. So now you're right, there's this movement, right, towards the legalization of what's called adult use, that's the phrase, or recreational use of, uh, of marijuana. What's being proposed, as I understand it, though, it's not going to be on the ballot at this point. They are looking to get, it's over 100, I think it's 123 or over 100,000 signatures to have it go first to the General Assembly for them to enact a statute for the legalization of adult use, recreational marijuana. And then if that doesn't go as they want, then they will take it to the people and to vote on it as a constitutional amendment. I don't know what the polling shows, but a lot of people say it's inevitable that we will go uh, where a lot of other states have gone in that regard. Is the present marijuana working in the state, you know, with the people that have to sell. There always seems to be so much controversy with it. I think from um, from what I hear, it is working. I mean, I think there, there's controversy because some people think there's too much regulation. It's too expensive. And, and, and the concern, like you see out in California, is the development of a black market. Yeah. Um, and so that that's a concern. I think the idea right now it is medical, uh, it's medical marijuana, and it needs to be regulated as such. I believe that the dispensaries are doing are doing well. Almost all of the cultivators are up and running. And I think at some point, I've heard it there, you know, there's a few that want to expand at some point, the medical marijuana board will have to program will have to approve. I, you know, has it exploded in terms of the market as they thought it would? I think some people will tell you it has not. 
But on the other hand, I think that it is an industry that is growing and has the ability to thrive. That's interesting to hear what the future is going to be with marijuana. Well, Elizabeth, you and your husband live in Gahana, which is a suburb of Columbus. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your personal life? Sure. Not very exciting, but um, <laughs> my, my husband is a family physician who has obviously been very, very busy during the, during the pandemic, and uh, he is truly what I would call a servant. He loves being a family practitioner. It's what he always wanted to do, and he is a great diagnostician. And so I'm very, very proud of him. We have two children. We adopted both of them from China. They are, one of them has graduated from college and is looking to go on for a graduate degree. And the other one is over at Butler University, majoring in math and mechanical engineering. So you know she didn't get her genes from me. We are both very fortunate. They are just lovely girls. And we have enjoyed every moment with them. I will say that with our two careers, balancing them, that what we've done is we've worked and we've taken care of our family. And that's been primarily our, our goals. Was it difficult to adopt children from China? I mean, I think our listeners would wonder, how do you really go about adopting a child? Well, our daughters are now 24 and 21. And when we made the decision to do it, it sort of was perhaps at the peak, okay, uh, the wait was not real long. It was anywhere from nine months to a year. We went through a fabulous agency that really had a mission purpose as opposed to a business purpose. And of course, they shepherded us the whole way, helped us do everything. Did the paperwork take some time? Yes. But as a lawyer, I'm used to paperwork. So I guess that didn't, that didn't bother me. And our process went very smoothly. Later on, due to a lot of different reasons, probably mostly political, there became a great slowdown. And now I don't know how it is, but I know that the Chinese have been very worried because they've let a lot of their a lot of their girls go, right? A lot of their girls are now in this country. And of course the whole adoption was because the whole the whole program I should say was because they only allowed one child per family in order to help with their population problem, right? Their economics, yep. disease, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Because at the time, traditionally, it was that that legal rule about one child per family clashed also with a tradition uh, and a cultural rule that a boy would take care of the family, his parents, but the girl would leave and go be with her husband's family. And so economically, it made more sense for people, right, to want to have a boy. So it was a terrible clash in a way of sort of the new and the old. But for us... We feel very, very fortunate and blessed. Yeah. Before we close, I'm going to ask a couple more questions. And one of them is, tell us about your father was a minister in your private life. And then in closing, let our listeners know how they could contact you. Sure. Yes, my, my father was a United Church of Christ minister, and my mother was a teacher. So um, I, I came from educated parents, uh, not wealthy parents at all, if anybody knows anything about ministers and teachers. But education, what, what was what was important, and they encouraged me. So I never thought it was unusual that I was going to law school. So I feel very fortunate to have grown up in a family that was had good values, but was an open-minded family as well. And I think that's important in, in today's society to understand that. So uh, I can be reached uh, through email at et 
just like the movie E.T., yes, E.T. Smith, at Voris, V as in victory, O-R-Y-S dot com. Uh, or you can call my office number, which is 614-464-5443. You want to repeat that for our listeners? Sure. Again, it's E.T. Smith at Voris.com. And the phone number is 614-464-5443. This certainly has been a most informative interview. And I certainly thank you providing such a depth of information about the role of the Ohio Marijuana and the Ethics Commission. So thank you again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again, Elizabeth, for the interview. And my gratitude to our listeners. High Heels and Politics has been heard around the world thanks to the British Broadcasting System. If you have any ideas for future interviews, contact me at highheelspolitics at gmail.com. And thanks to producer Ryan Kulik for making this podcast possible. High Heels and Politics with Marianne Christie is produced and engineered by Ion Community. Music by Sharad Sato. Subscribe and listen wherever you find your podcasts.